Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back at the end of a week uh, for another weekly market recap with my very good friend from Texas, who is trying to not sweat his way too much through this interview. Yep. Lance Roberts, how you doing, Lance? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know the 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 the, the thing about Texas summers is it's funny. You know it's hot here, but it's not really that abnormal. Yeah, it's hot, but it's just part of just living in Texas. Yeah, speaking for the rest of the country, like you know, an entire month of 106 plus degree weather, it kind of is abnormal, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've lived through a lot of summers here in Texas, and you know, it's just hot. So it just is what it is. All right. Well, look, uh, kudos to you and the Texans for surviving in that type of heat. And then for you for willingly going out and getting your run in before we do these weekly market recaps. Super yeah, impressive. Yeah, that's not the hard part. The hard part's the cold shower when I get back. That's that's the hard part. <laughs> do you really do the cold shower thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's 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 the it's critically hard at you know when you first get into it, right? I mean, that initial shock is hard, but after you know five minutes or so, you just kind of go numb. You just don't feel it anymore. So, <laughs> oh god, five minutes of cold. Yeah, you definitely go numb. Uh, so this is the whole Wim Hof, Andrew Huberman. Yeah. You know, chill your body core down. Yeah, it, it does work. It, it, uh, you feel great afterwards, but you know, it's just uh, it's something that you got to kind of you know grind your way through. I don't look forward to it at all. There's nothing. There's nothing exciting about that cold shower, but you do feel really good afterwards. Yeah, and that one, I think it's not physical fortitude; it's just the mental fortitude yeah. of forcing yourself to go through, especially when the the hot knob is just right there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, look, lots to talk about, um, and and let's talk about something that's going to make uh, all the older gentlemen watching this uh, video uncomfortable. Um, Lance, I, I I think the market has ED, and I call it uh, exuberance dysfunction. Uh, if you look at the <laughs> the market trading for the past week or so, uh, it, it rises in the morning, but then it just kind of just loses its mojo and just kind of ends the date in this sort of flaccid, you know, deflation, right? <laughs> good choice. Good choice of words there. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, this is nothing that you know is surprising. I mean, we we talked about this in the month of July. We said, hey, look, you know, we're due for a three to five percent correction. And that was just a function of what was going to happen. Markets were too extended above moving averages. Um, the deviations were, were extreme. Uh, overbought conditions, your relative strength, et cetera, um, had really gotten a very overbought. So, you know, the market's going through a nice, normal correction. We've been looking to add some positions to the portfolios. We bought some Apple this week on its pullback after its earnings. And you know, that's that's you know, this is a much better risk-reward entry point now than it was you know, just a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, nothing nothing wrong with the markets whatsoever. This is just a normal correction within a bullish trend that we've been in since October. Right. And and you have been saying that this is what you were expecting was going to happen. Uh, if memory serves, it was a 3 to 10% pullback. I think we're at the 3% level right now, at least in the S&P. Yep. Um, so as you sort of told us you would, you're going to be using this as a way to kind of reload on some positions that you're longer term bullish about. Sounds like Apple's one of them. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and part of Apple is that, you know, there's there's two functions that go into investing now that you have to consider. Um, you know, I'm a fundamental investor by nature. And and, and so 
when I look at a company or look at an investment long-term, we own some stocks in our portfolio that are, are true deep discount value-oriented stocks. Uh, CVS Health is one of those stocks. Trades at a 0.2 price to sales, PE is seven. I mean, it's just an extremely well-run company that is trading at an extremely deep discount. Um, then there's companies like Apple. Uh, Apple's earnings are slowing. Their revenue growth is slowing. That was evident in their recent report. But they are in the top 10 holdings of the S&P 500 index. So two things have to be factored into your portfolio allocation today that we haven't had to do before, right? This is something new since about 2008 in particular because of the surge of money going into ETFs is that mindless passive robot that, that is out there. And you have to consider some of our positions now are basically indexed positions. So in other words, I know that as people buy S&P 500 ETFs or large cap you know, growth ETFs or whatever it is, 30 cents of every dollar is going into Apple, Microsoft, Google, those, those companies. So we own those companies in our portfolios because of that reason. It's not because they're fundamental value, it's because of the passive effect. So we have a portion of our portfolio that is, is built around the, the effect created by passive index flows. And then we have a portion of portfolio based on value and fundamental disciplines. Okay. Um, and I'm curious, just because you brought it up here, um, what, are you, what are you buying Apple more for right now? Passive indexing. Okay. So it, it, it's less of a, hey, I think Apple's going to continue growing at a rate that justifies an even higher PE. No, that, no that, that, that hasn't happened in years for Apple. <laughs> so, you know, Apple trades at roughly seven times price to sales their revenue growth does not justify their valuation. And yeah. just to be clear, you're saying revenue growth, but their revenues have actually decreased the past three quarters in a row, right? Right, right. But overall revenue growth over the last five years, 10 years, right? Sure. Their revenue growth is not strong enough to support their valuations. It's a $3 trillion company. Um, you can't grow earnings fast enough to justify the valuations that Apple has right now. That's just... It's not feasible, but because of its weight in the index, I have to own Apple. It's just a function of the passive indexing flows. And if I don't own that position, then portfolios are gonna underperform long-term because of the lack of weight in those top 10 stocks. So I don't, know, I don't own all 10. I don't own you know, Meta and a couple others for Tesla's example, I don't own those. But we own Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, because just specifically because of those those passive indexing flows. Now, the rest of our portfolio is built around fundamental value and discipline, but that's a that's a different story. Okay, so so part of this is just go into the war, go into war with the army you have versus the yeah. army you ideally want, right? You're just like, look, I got to have some of these stocks in there because maybe fundamentally their valuations aren't justified, but capital flow wise, they're just, they're, they're I, I need to be in them. Well, well, yeah, it's it's like surfing, right? So, you know, it's really hard to surf against the waves. It's much easier to surf with the wave. So, you know, if the wave is passive indexing, you've got to have a portion of your portfolio that, that, that plays with that flow because that's where money's going. And it's going to continue to go that way until at some point, I don't know if this ever occurs because there's really no reason for it not to, um, that those flows reverse out of ETFs back into individual stock picking, but there's really nothing to drive that because the entire in, the entire industry, financial industry, is now driven to drive money into these vehicles because 
it's better for Wall Street. If I can get you to just buy and hold an ETF and I can collect a fee on every quarter, every month, every year, that's better for me than having to sell you a new stock every week. And this is why really ever since 1980s, and this is with the invention of mutual funds, this was the invention ultimately of ETFs, this was all driven by Wall Street to annuitize their business. And so there's no reason to drive back towards individual stock picking by Wall Street. It's not profitable for them. Okay. And, and an additional factor in that is around 1980, that's where we really began making the shift from corporate uh, pension programs to individual retirement accounts and and 401k plans. And, and certainly most 401k plans don't give their employees the opportunity to invest in individual stocks. It's right. just, hey, here's a small number of, of funds that we've put together. And those funds programmatically take every dollar they put in and allocate it a certain way, right? So that supports this whole thing too, correct? Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, 401ks are a small, a small fraction of the of the over the overall markets. Uh, it's, it's still primarily pensions and uh, insurance companies and mutual fund companies, those type of things. That's still uh, hedge funds. Um, so that's still a predominant chunk of the business. But you know, again, just for Wall Street in general and the average retail investor, this is why you know. You know, if you ever, have you ever just thought about this for a second as an individual investor? Think about this for a moment. Why does Wall Street tell you to buy ETFs and, and buy mutual funds because you can't beat the index? But then every hedge fund, pension fund, mutual fund company in the world is buying individual stocks. You, you don't see Warren Buffett buying ETFs. Right. You know, you don't see Ray Dalio buying ETFs. You don't see Paul Tudor Jones buying ETFs. So why are they all telling you to buy an ETF if they're buying individual stocks? You know, just think about it for a moment. Yeah. And and it goes back to the old Texan rule, which is if you're <laughs> sitting at the table and can't figure out who the patsy is, well, it's probably you. <laughs> probably. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, so just to put a wrapper around this, um, uh, the, the, the market's ED uh, is a sign here that you've been expecting, which is, hey, the rally gets to a point where it just, it just can't go up. It, it actually needs to take a breather. The pause that refreshes. Maybe it's got to go back to the store and get a blue pill, um, but it's it giving us that that three to ten percent pullback that you've been expecting so far. Things are largely playing out according to your script. Um, so, and you're actually deploying cash as as prices come down, cool off a little bit here. Um, we are now getting to the far end of uh, the earnings season. Um, now that we've got a lot more visibility into what Q2 earnings were. Um, what are your what are your sort of ending takeaways here from that? Well, nothing surprising. We've got about a seventy five percent beat rate, which is exactly what you would expect. Uh, you know, we lowered the bar from last June from two hundred and twenty dollars a share down to one hundred and seventy two dollars a share. So, hey, surprise! Uh, companies beat earnings. So, you know, it's really exactly what you kind of expect. Overall, the beats weren't that great. Uh, the misses weren't huge, but the beats weren't all that fantastic. Um, you know, outside of that, companies really weren't rewarded for beating stocks overall. We saw a few companies that were, but most most companies, they traded up a little bit if they beat earnings. They traded down mildly if they missed earnings for the most part. So it was pretty much a priced in, what I'll call a priced in earnings market. Stocks came in about right where everybody expected they would. So, uh, you know, most of the run up this year had already priced in the earnings into the reports. And so that's why you didn't see a lot of movement and really haven't seen a lot of movement since then. Okay. And, you know, you've shown us in, in past weeks, um, your matrices from Simplevisor, 
where kind of everybody had now been crowded into the overbought range. And, and so you would expect an overbought stock not to react as much uh, to, to earnings. So in addition to earnings, though, you know, they give guidance. In general, how is the guidance that you've heard going forward for the rest of the year? And maybe just is, is it more positive, less positive or about what folks expected? It's it's you know, I would say it's a little bit more positive, I think, than what a lot of people were expecting. Um, and as you're seeing earnings kind of get, uh, you know, brought up, earnings estimates kind of getting ratcheted up here a little bit. Analysts are, you know, uh, hopeful that the the growth is going to be out there. We're seeing analysts kind of ratchet up, you know, GDP expectations as well as uh, earnings expectations. So guidance was pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, again, not not gangbusters like, you know, NVIDIA kind of shocked the market last quarter. Says, We're up to 50 percent revenue increase this right. quarter. Uh, they haven't reported yet. That's later this month. We'll see if they actually meet that estimate. But, you know, overall, you know, guidance was the, the that earnings have pretty much probably troughed uh, in the fourth quarter and first quarter of this year. And so now analysts are kind of starting to move up those expectations for the rest of this year and next year. OK, um, so let's let's dig into that. So um, coming into this year. Uh, as we've talked about many times, everybody was expecting a recession, yeah. right? So we kept talking about the coming earnings recession in stocks, right? And now the narrative is becoming, hey, maybe not even a soft landing, maybe a no landing. And, and now, you know, what you're saying, we're kind of hearing from these folks is that, hey, earnings have dropped, right? Better better days ahead tomorrow. Um, I released a video two days ago um, talking about this concept of stealth liquidity as perhaps the reason for why uh, the recession hadn't happened, right? And uh, you know, I think it's still a, a, a good debate as to whether it's going to happen, but we can't argue that it hasn't happened yet, right? And um, it was, I was reacting in the video to an article by um, Mike Wilson, who's uh, Morgan Stanley's chief strategist, and was very bearish on the economy, definitely one of the people who was talking about um, a recession coming this year. And he basically said, hey, look, I think the reason why we haven't had this recession is, is while we have the Fed and the banking system stepping hard on the brakes right now, um, we have the fiscal side uh, that's going bananas right now. We have a extremely high deficit, both in absolute terms, but also in relative terms, in terms of percent of GDP. And I know as I'm talking here, you've just pulled up this federal expenditures chart. So you're going right where I'm going here. Um, yeah. And you can see there right there, if I'm if if, if I'm uh, intuiting this right, your black line there is basically the percent of um, GDP that the current right. deficit is. And we have... Um, We've rarely had deficits this high a percent of GDP. This data set's a little skewed because we went bananas during COVID, right? Um, but a nine percent GDP, nine percent a deficit that's nine percent of GDP is historically very aberrant, and we've we've pretty much almost never had it that high when the unemployment rate has been as low as it is. So right. I'll let you take over the torch here for a second. But but the kind of the conclusion that I took is. Right now, we have like a wartime deficit in a peacetime economy, and that that is what is probably supporting the economy and, and let's say, pushing off the recession's arrival by a matter of quarters. How many quarters? Totally up for debate. And the point is, is 
you can't do this forever, right? You end up creating some big problems by having this issue where the monetary system's on the brakes hard, but the fiscal's jamming the gas pedal hard. And, and one, you know, one big issue that that will create if you have it go on for too long is you will cause inflation to resurge. You know, with, with what we're doing on the fiscal side is basically completely counter to the campaign the Fed has been running for the past year and a half here. So, you know, some people think I'll leave it for political analysts to decide that that the administration's deliberately doing this to goose the economy through next year's November election, right? To in, in, improve the odds of, of uh, the current administration getting reelected. Um, a big question I would just toss out there, I'd love for you to react to as you, you give us your general reaction is, can they do this or will some of these bad consequences arise beforehand? Um, it's a year, it's, it's still over a year away, right? So right. Let, let me know what you think. Um, I don't, you know, there's, there's always this debate about debts, deficits, and we're going to have this massive problem, you know, runaway inflation. And there's really no evidence of that. And let me explain to you why. So by the way, just so you can tease me about it, I just wrote an article about this. I have it on my list here to go through. So I'm, I'm trying to provide well, a segue to that article. <laughs> right. Well, no, I actually, there's a, I've got another article that's coming out next week. It's a tag on to uh, the, the recent article on debt. So, but, so, but basically this is federal expenditures versus GDP. And, and it's, what's evident is when you have in, in federal GDP is going to rise. I mean, it's just common sense. You've got money that's flowing into the economy. So we got all the stimulus spending. Uh, the annual, the, and so the the orange bars are the annual rate of change in federal spending, and and so during the period where we had no stimulus spending as a, as a function, GDP slowed down. Now it's rising again, and this is why you've got the Atlanta Fed uh, now pegging third quarter GDP at near four percent. That's just the start of the quarter, but you know they're they're pretty optimistic here. We've had two percent growth rates in the first two quarters of this year. Not surprising, the GDP is ticking up. Um, as you have, you know, annual rates of change of federal spending, you know, being pretty aggressive here. And, you know, it's not just uh, this. So this is um, kind of a long-term trend of, this is the uh, real GDP. So this is inflation adjusted. And, and you can see that over the last, you know, since 2007, we've just been hitting the economy repeatedly with, you know, uh, QE and TAMP and HARP and CARES Act and, and you know, it's all this type of stuff. And so we've been able to kind of maintain this 2% growth rate. And this year, we're expected to kick off about 2% because we're just kind of continuing the same level of deficit spending that we have going on. Again, we've talked about before, you know, you just have this tremendous amount of, of M2 as a percent of GDP is coming down, but it's still extremely elevated. And this is why we've been able to forestall this kind of concern about, you know, this recession. And the same thing when you when you take a look at the annual rate of change in money supply, it's collapsed sharply. We have a very negative rate of annual M2 money supply. Now, it's just the rate of change. We're not printing a bunch of money. So M2 is a function of a year where your rate of change is falling. That's why inflation is coming down. But the M2 is still out there. It's just not growing as fast as it was because we're not printing as much as we were. So um, let me, let me. there's a couple of, but I was talking about the deficit. Here's what I was looking for. Um, so this is the deficit. Um, and, and deficit spending is, has been really kind of the bread and butter of economic growth since 1980, 
uh, when Reagan really started combating the inflation spike back then. And so as we continue to have increasing uh, levels of deficits, and again, you see this big spike down during the COVID stimulus, that was the $5 trillion. And then it reversed because we didn't reduce or we didn't uh, renew that stimulus spending. So the President Biden's going, I reduced the deficit. Well, no, you didn't, because if you actually look, if you kind of drew a trend line of deficit spending and kind of X out that one, you know, kind of little period of that COVID spending, you've actually got a bigger deficit now than you've ever had in history. So you're, we're just continuing to spend more and more money here um, as we go forward. But again, to your point, you go, well, this is going to have bad outcomes. But again, you take a look at Japan. They have rolling recessions about every three years or so. Their, their economy grows about one, one and a half percent. The Bank of Japan owns about 80 percent of the bond market and interest rates are around zero. And they've been doing this for 30 years. So, you know, this concern is, is that we're going to have all this inflation from the debt. But really, there's no evidence of that to occur because the more debt you have, the slower rate of economic growth you have because the debt is non-productive, which leads to lower levels of inflation, which leads to lower levels of interest rates. So the, the fear of runaway inflation in the 1970s, we don't have that type of economic environment. Back in the 1970s, the average household debt to net worth was about 60%. Today, it's 160%. So there's just simply the, an inability to have higher interest rates and higher inflation because of the debt. So as soon as interest rates go up, look, we got to 4% on 10-year treasuries. We had a banking crisis. We had to bail out regional banks because of the collapse in collateral values. What happens at 5%? What happens at 6% to our banking system, to our housing market, to everything else that's debt-driven? And if that blows up, what happens to inflation and economic growth? So none of those arguments carry any water when you start talking about the amount of debt that we are carrying, and all you have to do is go look at, a, at Japan in terms of their debt to GDP ratio versus their economic growth versus in, uh, interest rates and inflation, and it tells you the whole story that's happening here in the U.S. and where we're ultimately headed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So help, help me square this then. So Lacey Hunt, you know, talks about the, the negative multiplier yes. of... of uh, you know, exactly. capital that goes into the government sector, right? And so right. basically it's sort of like the more debt we have at this point, the less economic growth we have at this point because of the debt service costs and it, it's, yeah, well, the, the capital is just not being used that productively. So the point is, is how is it still stimulating the economy then if, if, if we're at this point where the debt's so high that we now have what, you know, our, our interest on the national debt now is that we just crossed a trillion? Right. Yeah, so, well, no, no. You, so Lacey Hunt's absolutely right. Government spending has a negative multiplier effect because you're recycling tax dollars. Um, and, and so, OK, so first of all, let's understand what multiplier effects are. And let's use a basic example. I'm going to build a house. OK, so in order to build a house, the first thing I have to do is I've got to go hire architects to design the house and I've got to hire engineers to 
you know, draw up the plans and the engineering. Then I've got to submit it to, you know, the HOA and to the, to, you know, downtown. I got to pay fees for that uh, to get the, the plans approved. And once I get it approved, I have to go buy, I have to go buy all the raw materials. Uh, that requires people to create those raw materials, ship them to the, to the construction site. Then I've got to have workers that actually have to, you know, put up the two by fours, pour the slab, sheetrock the house. And then, once that's all done, then I've got to furnish the house. So the point is, is, is when I build a house, right, every dollar I spend in, in building a house has probably about a five to one multiplier effect. In other words, it's being spread out through the whole economy. That dollar goes to the manufacturers, goes to the producers, goes to the workers, and it just cycles through. And so it creates a much, much bigger lasting economic effect. A negative multiplier and this is the problem with services. You know, the reason we had such strong economic growth back in the 60s and 70s is we were 80% manufacturing. Right. So we, we were a bunch of blue collar workers. We were manufacturing and building. We were making jeans and televisions and all that kind of stuff here. Big multiplier effects. And that's why you had very strong rates of economic growth. You had higher inflation. Yes, you had higher interest rates. Yes, but that was fine because people were making more money because of the multiplier effect in the economy. Services now make up 80% of the economy. Services have basically no multiplier effect. I pay my Uber driver, that's about it, right? <laughs> that's as far as it goes. Um, you know, and, and so there's a, very, there's a very limited impact of dollar spent. And now when the government does it, it's worse because they're spending it on giving checks to people to go spend one time in the economy, but I'm just taking money from somebody else. Right. They didn't mean they didn't earn that money. They're taking money from you to give it to me so that so you're spending less and I'm spending money in the economy, but I'm spending the money they took from you. So there's actually a negative impact to economic growth over time because we're recycling tax dollars. And that's the problem with governmental spending is that it's always on non-productive uses, welfare, interest on the debt. Those type of things don't create economic activity. If I would take that same money and go build power plants, nuclear plants, um, refineries, you know, those type of things that created long lasting, long term revenues and income for the government through either fees that I charge for the use of that, that product or taxes that I charge on the use of that product, et cetera, or that facility, then that's a viable use of debt that actually creates an organic economic increase in activity in the economy. Okay, so um, well, right now we've got uh, the government spending a lot, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn off your screen here. Oh yeah, it's fine. Just for a second, because I wanna I wanna show mine. Because um, I I think I, I I when I was looking at your initial chart, um, I, I saw the nine percent and thought it was the same as the nine percent of my chart, but it wasn't. Yeah. So uh, I just wanna. I just want to show folks what I was referring to here. Um, but you're right. You're right about the deficit. It's about nine percent of GDP right now. Yeah, and that's what this chart shows here, right? So the the red dot here is today. We're dying down right at about um, nine percent, the nine percent level for GDP. And you'll see here um, all, all these tan dots here. That's mm -hmm. everything from April 2022, sorry, April 2020 on. So think about all this stuff as, as extraordinary measures, you know, during the pandemic, right? So there's a reason why these are all outliers, right? Yep. When you compare them to the blue dots, which are 1969 to 2019, you'll see um, 
you know, we, we've, we've never had a deficit this low, except for just a few periods of time here. And again, that's like wartime type deficits. And we've, we've almost never uh, had deficits, run deficits, period, but, but certainly this deep with the unemployment rate this low, right? Because obviously this is a, a sign of good times, right? You shouldn't really be needing to run a deficit during good times when unemployment's really low. So it just shows you how aberrantly we are today, right? So there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, yeah, I don't, is, just real quick, ahead. I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the dates in that chart. I can't see it, but I will bet you the last time that, and, and again, you know, we can just look at, at you know, this it, kind of this chart of the deficit that I was showing you earlier, um, and, and and just you know, because you were saying you know, it's kind of a wartime level, and you know, I would suspect, and again, I don't know because I don't have the dates on that uh, particular graph, which is a good graph, but I'll bet that that's around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, is about the last time we were running that level of a deficit. So I bet that's probably the financial crisis lows that were kind of before where we are now. Because we yeah, remember we were, doing, we were doing HAMP and HARP and cash for clunkers and you know TARP and all the other stuff that we were doing back then. So I, I bet that's where that was. I, 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 I don't have the exact date on that scatter plot either. I can't track it to a particular date, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Basically crisis. Right. Yeah. Um, not not so good periods. <laughs> yeah. We're at crisis, crisis measures, yet we're being told everything's fine. You know, economy's doing great. The consumer's robust, all that stuff. Yeah. All right. I want to I want to share one other screen here around the deficit. Um, so bear with me, folks. Uh, let me just pull it up here. OK, uh, share the screen. OK, do you see this? Yes, sir. Okay, so this just someone had been asking in response to the the last video I did, which is okay. So what are we, what are we spending this money on, right? So um, this does a pretty good job of just breaking down, you know, the the inflows, the total receipts, and the total outlays. You can see the deficit right now for the current fiscal year is about uh, 1.6 trillion dollars. Um, and just a couple things to note about that, which is like that's. That's over two times what we spend on our healthcare system. It's over two times what we spend on, on national defense. Like this is a big gap <laughs> right now. Um, well, no, and this is this important. That here's the important thing to look at, though. So we have two. So what what this doesn't break down is this doesn't break down mandatory versus discretionary spending. No, and I know you have a great chart for that, which maybe we want to pull up at some point in time. Yeah, um, but yeah. So social security. So what's what's mandatory? Things we have to pay. So you know, the, remember the whole debt ceiling thing. Everybody's like, oh, we're going to default on our debt, and you know, people aren't going to get their payments. That's not true because mandatory spending gets paid. Period. Always. There's never a, there's never actually a threat of default. Um, but look at social security. One point one billion just in social security. Um, income security. That's Medicare, Medicaid. Health is Medicare, Medicaid. Um, so you add all those up, right? So you got 1.1 billion, uh, oh, sorry, 1.1 trillion, uh, 700 billion, 600 billion. Now you start adding that up, all of a sudden you realize pretty quickly that, you know, defense spending is discretionary, so it's not in there, but you've got Medicaid down there at 657 billion, net interest on the debt at 561 billion. So that, so Medicare, net interest, income, health, social security, that, and, oh, and veterans benefits. Uh, those are that's mandatory spending. You add all that up, that's that's your 3.6 trillion in receipts right there, plus a little bit more. 
So in other words, yeah, I think it's like 105 percent of receipts is the the mandatory spending, right? That, absolutely right. So yeah. j- j- you're you're spending every dollar that you're taking from taxpayers. You're just paying interest on the debt and welfare. <laughs> right. So and by the, everything by the way, else is out of deficits. Yeah. Right. In, in 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 this chart here, the net interest is 561 billion. We already know that that is almost doubled. That's right? correct. <laughs> so it's even worse than, yeah. than this quick napkin math that we're doing here. No, absolutely. So that's that's one of the things I want to sort of point out here, which is like, hey, we, you know, our our personal or sorry, our national income statement not very good, right? Um, what I find interesting here too, I'm just pointing it out because it's caught my eye. Look at how much smaller corporate income tax receipts are versus individual income tax receipts. And, yep. and hey, no huge surprise that individual income is going to be bigger because we're a consumer-driven economy. But but part of me looks at that and thinks, wow, corporations probably do do a really good job of evading having to pay taxes. Yeah, but think about this. There was a there was a really good you know article yesterday, and I, and I think this is something to think about. You know, and this is kind of the problem with taxes the way we do it. So I go spend a dollar. Okay, so let's just say it's a raw dollar, right? I I had to earn the dollar, first of all. But let's just say, you know, I go spend the dollar. I go spend the corporation has to pay tax in the dollar. And then they have to pay weight. So then they take that same dollar and then they they use that dollar to pay, you know, salaries to, you know, a worker who then pays income tax on that dollar, who then goes out to buy stuff he needs to live, which then you pay a sales tax on that dollar. But then the company that got the dollar for, for the stuff he just bought to you know, put food on his table has to pay taxes on that dollar. You know, and, and so when you really think about you know, how many times that we tax the same dollar over and over and over again, you, know, you, you, you really start to understand the problem we have with our tax system. And, and in theory, you know, there should only be one tax. If you're first, so first of all, we're not supposed to tax. Period. Right. So you go back to the Constitution. <laughs> right. We're not supposed to be taxing people like we are, but we are. Um, different argument for a different day. But <laughs> at some point, we've got to think about you know should corporations even pay tax? Right. If you're going to tax that dollar, you know once it passes. So even think about dividends. Right. Company collects a dollar, they pay an income tax on the dollar they collect, then they issue out a dividend to shareholders, then pay a dividend on that tax, pay a tax on that dividend, right? We just tax the dollar so much. Every dollar of of earned income, we tax it to death through the entire system. And unfortunately, we still can't make ends meet. But you just think about the amount of times that same tax dollar, that same dollar gets taxed through the same environment really tells you we've got a lot of problems in terms of both the spending side of government but also on our taxation side and how we run our tax system. And this is why there's been a lot of arguments for a flat tax, a fair tax, that you just tax the dollar once and you're done. Right. And uh, I mean, look, uh, I could do a huge diatribe on on how complicated and costly uh, it continues to become for me to pay taxes uh, with a relatively simple household tax structure. Right. We've got, you know, my wife and my uh, our joint taxes, uh, personal taxes, and then we have a couple of businesses. Um, and it is just ridiculous how many hoops you have to jump through and what you're end up paying just to put your taxes together. Right. right. <laughs> well, uh, and, and it's also and it's also kind of that's a really good point, though, about corporate taxes versus individual income taxes. So remember, there's a whole lot of people collecting individual income tax, collecting individual income. So you've got 330 million people paying, you know, roughly 190 million of them pay income tax. 
W-2. But remember, in every dollar the corporation makes, they're deducting all their expenses, right? So I'm deducting labor, I'm deducting, you know, right. you know, and then you know this with your business, right? The first thing you do is like, okay, I'm, I'm deducting my travel, I'm deducting my video costs, I'm deducting my internet costs, I'm deducting my telephone costs, you know, and you're deducting all those expenses. So that's why corporations pay less income taxes ultimately, um, because they're fewer in number, but also to their deducting all those expenses off their income. Yes, uh, my my sort of cheeky point was, um, and which which you and I are not doing. You yeah. know, many of these companies are setting up subsidiaries in sure. countries that have super favorable tax laws, and you know, funneling most of their domestic profits there and showing, oh look, you know, I I have uh, hundreds of billions in revenue, and yet, wow, well, lo and behold, I I don't have any earnings because I'm or taxable earnings because I'm. Putting them through tiny little country acts, right? Yeah, that's why you know my my permanent address is Bahamas. No, I'm just eating. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're running in the heat. It's not the Texas exactly. heat. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So um, one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of dig into the deficit here is again keep your eye, folks, on this 1.6 billion gap. Yeah, right. That's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, and it explains, you know, why the deficit as a as a percent of GDP keeps going up. Um, but of course, getting back to Mike Wilson's comment, right, which is like, hey, look, you know, this deficit spending, while the Fed is trying to rein in, you know, decrease demand, this this fiscal spending from this big deficit is in the short term propping up the economy, and it is potentially pushing off the arrival of of a recession. And one of the things um, that that money is being spent on right now, that that additional deficit money is being spent on right now, um, is something that that I've just been hearing folks begin to talk about a fair amount recently, which is the employee retention tax credit. Yep. You heard about this, Lance? So yeah, let's I talk applied about... for it. Didn't get it, but I got applied for it. Okay, well, let, let's talk about this. So for folks that don't know about the, the ERC or the employee retention tax credit, um, it's something that was created back in 2020 during the scramble to say, okay, we got to you know help everybody who's getting hurt by the pandemic, by the shutdown of the economy in, in response to the pandemic. And basically it lets employers who kept people on their payrolls between March of 2020 and January of 2022, it says, look, we're going to basically reward you for keeping people employed. And so you can, you can apply as a business for a tax credit up to... There's a lot of lot of calculations, but it can be as much as twenty eight thousand dollars per employee that you kept on the mm -hmm. payrolls. Um, so, like every government program, way more costly than they thought it was going to be. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office originally estimated maybe this would cost fifty five billion. They've already spent one hundred and fifty two billion, and there's a backlog of eight hundred thousand applications that still haven't been addressed. Right, so this thing is just you know completely metastasizing in cost. Um, and what's interesting is, is, is like we saw with the PPP loans, this thing is very ripe for fraud. And there's so many companies out there or so, so many um, marketers out there that are tr trying to get companies to apply like you did in many ways, you know, potentially fraudulently, or maybe they're not even going to file the application. They're just going to take the fees. They're asking you to pay them to get all this paperwork done for you. But the IRS has already had to issue warnings about the extent of the fraud that's going on right, right now. Absolutely. No, and you think about it. Look, I mean, it's 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 good money. Um, if you can if you can make it work, it's twenty eight thousand an employee. So if you have ten employees, that's two hundred eighty thousand right? dollars. Up to, by the way, up to up to yes, yeah, uh, up to. So yeah, if you could max it out, yeah. and and that's per year. 
that that two hundred thousand is is per year. So remember, it's a two year period. So you know, for small businesses, it's a great windfall um, because if. It, but the thing is, you had to lose money um, in those tax years. So in other words, in order to qualify for the ERC, you had to lose money. So in other words, I kept employees on even though I was losing money when I should have maybe fired employees because I was losing money. I kept them on, and so they're saying, "Okay, if you kept them on, we'll, you know, we're going to give you this tax credit for keeping them employed during a period you were losing money." So, again, so there's kind of a qualification that you've got to do for it. But again, there's it's it's something like you said is very easy to defraud the government on because they don't have the ability to really check stuff. And this is why you had so much fraud with PPP loans. You had fraud with, you know, kind of, you know, now that we're looking back and we're starting to look at the money we spent during the pandemic. It was literally hundreds of billions of dollars that were funneled off to Chinese companies and Russian companies and, you know, all kinds of fraudulent activity that went on that, again, you know, we, we rushed to the aid. It's like, oh, we have to do this and we've got to help people because we're in trouble. And so we just quickly throw these programs together. We write a big blank check for it. And then we kind of expect everybody to act, you know, responsibly and not defraud right. the system. And it's just never the case. Now, it's never the case. So anyways, this is sort of some of that, you know, when we talked about the economy and financial markets and everything getting wildly distorted from all of this inefficient stimulus that was just thrown into the mix, you know, during the height of the pandemic. Point is here is there's still some of that going on here, right? And the $152 billion, you know, that's, that's not nothing, right? Um, so again, it, 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 where I'm going with all this is it helps explain the big head scratcher of, wait a minute, coming into 2023, it just seemed so probable that we were going to go into recession, um, you know, giving everything that was going on, and and yet it didn't arrive, right? So this is, a, right. I think, probably one of the, 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 the best and most credible explanations that I've seen so far about, okay, here's why it hasn't arrived, massive asterisk yet, right? <laughs> I, I got to, let me show you this chart, because this is one that's coming in one of my, in my upcoming article on this issue. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just basically to your point, and you can kind of see this as, as pretty evident. Hold on, having got your face right in front of my maximize button. Um, so what you see here is like, so every time that we've had to go in and fight some type of recessionary downturn in the economy, we go spend a bunch of money. Uh, Reagan did it had a big jump in, in government debt issuance. Um, same thing that we had in, you know, during the Bush administration to combat the 1991 recession. Of course, Obama combat, of course, uh, I, I didn't label it, but you had the increase in debt uh, during the, the dot-com crisis. But you, you, know, you see a big spike in yeah. the- It's starting to erupt, but just letting folks know you're talking about the light blue line here. Yes, the light blue line. Um, you see this big spike in the year-over-year -year rate of change in government debt when Obama was combating recession. Same thing in the Trump-Biden uh, Trump spending recession to combat you know, the pandemic crisis. Um, but here's the important part, right? Take a look at the 10-year treasury rate, which is the black line, and the red line, which is our composite economic indicator. That's wages, inflation, and, and interest rates combined. And, and what you'll notice is there's a very, you know, kind of a correlation to all of that you know, over time. And the more debt that we issue, the higher the debt, higher the deficits, the slower the rate of growth. But to your point, and this is this is the important fact here, is look at the red line, look how it jumped. We had so much spending going in under that Trump-Biden spending to, on, the, on the pandemic. We had this big jump 
in the composite indicator. And it's rolling over because we're having less debt issuance now. All that's going out of the system. And we're seeing the year-over-year uh, change in debt declining. And so that drop-off in the year-over-year uh, change in debt that's over on this far right-hand end suggests that we're about to see a period of much slower economic activity. Again, it's going to take a while to get to a recession. So everybody was expecting a recession last year. But remember, we talked about this before. If I'm at 5% economic growth and I go to 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, negative 1, now I'm in a recession, right? You, but you've got to get from that very elevated level of economic growth to negative before you're in the recession. And this is one thing that people didn't factor in. They're like, oh, you know, I'm going to have this recession because of this. But they forget that I've got to go all I'm at the top of the mountain. I got to go all the way down the mountain into the valley before I'm in recession. And that's just going to take some time for that for that excess that we put into the system to, to come out of the system. It's just going to take a longer period than we expect for that lag effect to catch up. So uh, I totally agree. Um, but, and this has been sort of my whole point of, of this discussion is, is not only does it take a long time to get down the mountain, right? It just takes time to get down the mountain, right? Yeah. Um, but we are doing certain things. Maybe it's like a two steps down, one step back up the mountain type of thing yeah. um, with this deficit spending. Um, and you have a piece that you just came out with that I'm trying to make the segue into. Uh, <laughs> Stimulus and consumption are fueling economic resilience, right? right? So we're, we're, we're taking the stimulus part. I, I've just been talking about that, right? Which is this, these increased deficit, this increased deficit spending. But you're saying consumption, you know, consumers are still, you know, even though they're doing more and more of it on, on the credit card, uh, they are still out there spending and keeping things going, maybe longer, perhaps than maybe prudence would would suggest, right. but they're doing it nonetheless, right? Right. Yeah. You know, we we've you know we've kind of all been expecting for the you know kind of the floor to fall out from underneath the consumer, but you know the one thing there, there's no saying right. Never count the consumer out. Uh, the consumers consumers in general they're very creative about finding ways to keep buying stuff. You know, it's it's YOLO. Got to you know I, I don't want to you know, not have what I want today. And so, yeah, they're going into credit card debt. They're, you know, taking, you know, uh, equity loans out on their houses. They're, you know, doing just, you know, a whole variety of things to, to figure out new ways to spend money. That'll eventually run out. But there's just still a lot of money, as I showed you earlier, that M2 is a percentage of GDP. There's still just a lot of money sloshing around the system that is still working its way out. Now, back to that pig in the python we've talked about before. It's just taking a long time. It's a big python. So we're going to have to, it's just going to take longer for that pig to, to exit. To exit. And as I, I've said before, with all this stimulus spending, so, you know, again, what the Fed and now the banking system are trying to do is they're trying to starve the snake um, so that that pig just gets out of it, right? And we have right. an empty python. But the the administration, the fiscal side of things is still like shoving pork chops into the python's <laughs> mouth, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. I think we probably murdered that pig in the python. Yeah, uh, I think so. Every way we could think about it. But yeah. Um, well, anyways, I don't know if you want to walk through them or whatnot, but but you have a lot of great charts in, in that uh, article that I just mentioned. Yep. And also sort of in a sister one that you released this week too, called The Problem with Debt's and deficits, which, you know, again, in the in the short term, as I said, 
they're providing enough support to the economy to kind of push the reckoning of a recession off for a bit, but it can't be done forever. And it does come with a real cost. And, and feel free to pull up any one of those if you want to, you don't have to, but let me, let me just read this one excerpt from uh, that, that article. Okay. You said, first, deficit spending was only supposed to be used during a recessionary period and then reversed to a surplus during the subsequent expansion. However, beginning in the early 80s, those in power only adhered to the deficit spending part. After all, if a little deficit spending is good, a lot should be better, right? And you right. had that chart of deficits where you can see, starting with Reagan, you know, everything just sort of accelerates to the downside um, in terms of just more and more profligate deficit spending. We're just more and more comfortable returning to the, well, let's just, you know, borrow more than we need or more than we have and spend it, right? Right. Um, secondly, as you say, deficit spending shifted away from productive investments, which create jobs like infrastructure and development to primarily social welfare and debt service. Money used in this manner has a negative rate of return. Now, we talked about that about 15 minutes ago, but basically just more and more of this deficit spending is really ultimately ending in a longer term negative uh, rate of return. Right. I mean, we're kind of digging the hole deeper even if we're we're titularly stimulating things today in a way that everybody can try to claim credit for, what we're doing to the long-term prospects of the nation is actually undermining them through this, correct? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just interesting. So I just, uh, like I said, I'm working on this other article and um, one, one of the charts I've gotten in that article is I've recreated this analysis from the CBO, which just came out and they projected um, the CBO projected the U S debt through 2053. Um, I recreated it, put an exponential trend line on it and ran it out through 2050. And, and the reason is, is so, so there's two important factors about this. One is again going back and talking about interest rates and you know where they're ultimately headed and why interest rates can't go up. If you're talking about the and, and you know the CBO is probably wrong, it'll probably be worse than this because the CBO is always wrong. They always underproject you know what what actually turns out to be the case. So unfortunately, that red line, which is the exponential uh, growth line of debt uh, since 1967, is probably the right number. So you're probably talking somewhere a much bigger debt level by 2050 than what the CBO is projecting. But let's just go with their numbers. Um, in order to issue that much debt, you can't have higher rates, period. And this is why the Bank of Japan owns 80% of the bond market in order to keep interest rates capped below 1%. They've got to keep interest rates low in order to issue that debt. So if the CBO is going to issue that much debt, so sorry, if the U.S. government is going to issue the debt that CBO is projecting, the Federal Reserve, this is this is this is not what the CBO projected, but the Federal Reserve will have to monetize up to 30% of that debt to keep interest rates low enough for them to issue that debt. So you're talking about the Federal Reserve having a balance sheet north of 40 trillion by 2050. Right. And, and now, for folks, just for comparison, right now it's what eight trillion? Yeah. 
And, and again, so, you know, what's the outcome of this ultimately is that if you take a look at debt to GDP as it's been rising, the actual growth rate of the economy continues to slow. And so if you project this out, you're going to have an economy growing at less than 2% going into 2050, which means also interest rates have to be well below 2% as well, along with inflation. Because again, you can't have economic growth at less than 2% with high inflation. Those numbers just don't, the, the math doesn't work. Okay, so you're basically saying almost mathematically, we, we have to become stuck in the Japan trap, right? Yeah. Where as you said, they, they can't let their interest rates rise and they literally can't. It's an existential limit for them because if interest rates rise, given the amount of debt they have, they basically just go insolvent okay. overnight, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Well, and this is what everybody keeps saying. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're bankrupt and, you know, this is going to happen and that's going to, absolutely. Um in 2000, we were talking about Japan being a fly in search of a windshield. It's 2023. There's still a fly looking in, you know, in search of a windshield 23 years later. 2030, there'll probably still be a fly in search of a windshield. You just don't know how long these things can go on before there's ultimately a, you know, a, a rebellion against that debt by the bond market. And the one thing that Japan has been able to weather remarkably up to this point is they're not a reserve currency. And so there is no demand to buy JGBs in order to, to, to shore up reserve currency. Countries do have their money in JGBs. We do too. And we've been using JGBs. That's the Japan, Japan government bond. Uh, uh, we've been using those bonds for carry trades for the last 13 years. Um, you know, we, we do a, a carry trade between the U.S. interest rate and the interest rate in the Japan. And we bring back the spread back in the U.S. to invest in the markets. We've been doing that trade for 13 years. Um, but eventually, Japan hits that windshield. Eventually, the U.S. will as well. But you just have to put this in context. You and I could be dead before that happens. Right. Right. We, and we could be. I mean, these things oftentimes can take out an awful lot longer than you think. And yeah. this is why you do a really good job of telling people who kind of wake up to this fact. Yes, it is highly likely going to happen, but it may very well not happen on the tomorrow timeline that most right. that many people you know assume. So they make really drastic life decisions because, oh, my God, it's all going to end. This, this, this can't continue. Yes, you're right. But they then assume so I got to I got to move everything out of U.S. dollars or whatever today, right? And the question is, hey, it might be thirty plus years before these chickens come home to roost, right? And well, look, there's a lot of guys out there that are preaching that kind of of commentary, and they're you know scaring people to death in order to sell them gold because right, it sells it newsletters or yeah sure. some product or Absolutely. whatever. Yeah, exactly. Just, just yeah, just you know, just make sure that you you know understand the product underneath the sales pitch, right? So. And, and if that's the product you want, that's great. The sales pitch is fine. But just make sure that what you're really expecting to happen is something that's logically, has a logical ability to happen within a, a, a relatively short time frame. Right. And look, I've been in the business of talking about these macro risks for a long time, for well over a decade. And I've seen a lot of people make really extreme changes in their lives and with their investments because of their fear of hyperinflation or you know the fact that the US is going to lose its reserved currency status or the unsustainability of the debt or all that type of stuff right and the, the counsel that i just have to give people after these years of experiences is 
look, what it, you, you have to act based upon your own personal calculus of what you think is going to happen, but you just have to be comfortable with the investments you're making and be comfortable that if it turn out, if your thesis turns out to be wrong, right? So if you've, if you've, you know, sold all your US dollars and you've put it all into either your favorite crypto or all in gold or in Lance's terms, cans of beanie weenies or whatever, and you've sold your home and you've moved to a retreat property in a remote place, you know, look, there's a lot to be said about that lifestyle, that, that the self-resilient, self-reliant, highly resilient lifestyle. And I have made a lot of investments in that myself, and a lot of them are wonderful. And I, I, I would do them no matter what the macro economy is doing. Um, but I've seen people make some really extreme life changes, in some cases, over 10 years ago, right? And, and the Armageddon that they were expecting hasn't arrived and, and may not arrive for a good long time here, right? And so some of them have been fine. They've found those life-enhancing changes. Some of them have said, wow, you know, if I could have done this all over again, I would not have made such you know, extreme decisions like that. And that's why you and I always counsel people to be not letting emotions drive the boat here, right? Let rationality, let data-driven decision-making get a, the help of a professional like you to basically say, hey, maybe we can come up with a plan that also includes some hedges in case your primary thesis is wrong. So again, just want to underscore to people to, to, to not be extreme in your decision-making. Be smart, but not extreme. Um, I, want to, I want to pull up one other uh, chart here, Lance, um, sure. just because your chart, I think, was based on this one. Right? Yes, that's the in one. Terms of the, yeah, and I just wanted to show this to give people the historical perspective, right? So uh, this is federal debt held, held by the public starting in 1900. Um, this was put together by the CBO. Um, and you can see this red line of where we are. <laughs> These are their projections, right? Yes. This isn't some scaremonger, some guy who's trying to sell a newsletter, putting up an alarming chart just to try to scare you into buying something. This is actually our government saying, hey, these are our projections on where the debt's going, folks. And, and generally, government projections, as we all know, tend to always be a little overly optimistic, right? It always tends to be <laughs> worse, right? As, as I knows said, what's gonna, as I said, the exponential trend line says it's going to be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So even worse than this, but this shows you basically we're already back at these, you know, um, extreme levels that we saw during World War II, and the the bean counters in in the uh, government think that you know we're just at the start of a massive run up from here. And as we just said, you know, it's probably going to be likely even worse than that. So um, I just want people to have that context. All right, and moving on from here, Lance. Um, yep. A question that's been come up in the context from from viewers in the context of this deficit spending is is hey what's that going to mean for bonds, right? If 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 we're basically having to fund this deficit, we're going to be funding it by selling bonds, right? So is that adding to bond supply, and as a result, is that going to drive yields up? And should we be expecting you know bond prices to go down as a result, um, or is this too small given you know you, you you had those charts that showed the massive increase in debts that we took on during uh the pandemic and and we're now coming down from that mountain so which kind of wins out here well no just uh, as i said earlier if you just take a look at the long-term trajectory of deficits um and then the increase in the deficits of course that required more debt to be issued um you know we just go back to the basic functionality that in order to issue debt 
we can't have higher interest rates. And, you know, there's this, there's this kind of thought. And, and again, there's there've been a few guys out, you know, lately and, and really smart guys, right? Ray Dalio, Jer- Jeremy Grant, the mothers talking about how, how rates have to go to five or 6% because we're issuing all this debt. And in a, and I'm, I'm writing an article on this, by the way, I'll have it out next week. I'm shocked. Um, shocked, I tell shocked you. That you're shocked. writing an article on this. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, because we're getting a lot of, you know, we, there's a lot of questions about this. And their premise is, is that in a normally functioning environment, right, it would make complete sense that as a bond buyer, I would say, okay, you're issuing all this debt. So I'm going to require, and, and based on the economic growth and what's happening in the economy, I'm going to require a higher yield because, well, you're not AAA anymore, you're AA+. Plus. So you need to pay me more for me to buy that bond. So in a normal operating environment where the, the, the bond market is driven by buyers and sellers, institutions and banks and those type of things, and you know the, the seller being the government, then that would make complete sense. And I completely agree with that. You would have higher rates. The problem is, is that we do not live in that environment. At some point, when interest rates rise enough for four and a quarter and you start to see banks fail again because of the suppression of their collateral, or you see uh, bankruptcies rise because companies can't refinance their debt, the government and the Federal Reserve and central banks globally will step in to be the buyer of bonds in order to suppress interest rates, just like Japan is continuing to own more and more of the uh, of what's happening in, in the global bond market, and then the, sorry, the Japan bond market. And, it, and you don't need to look any further than this uh, chart right here. Let me find it real quick. Bear with me one moment, please. Okay. We're doing a lot of screen sharing this time, folks. Hopefully you'll like it. Uh, let yeah. us know in the comment <laughs> section, plus or minus either way. But I think the visuals really help. Yeah, they do. But I, again, and this is not anything new uh, that's been going on, but you just have to understand that this is not going to change anytime soon. So why are interest rates up here over the last, you know, year or so, right? And everybody's like, oh my gosh, interest rates are up. It's terrible. Well, let's just take a look real quick at what's been going on uh, behind the scenes. And this is really the function of what's happening with interest rates. The reason we had interest rates low for so long and from 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, we had zero interest rates virtually by, by federal governments and central banks were massively expanding their balance sheet. They were the buyers of all this issuance of bonds. Over the last year or so, the reason interest rates have come up some is because bank, central banks are trying to reduce their balance sheet a little. They're trying to give themselves a little bit of buying power because they know that at some point very soon, that recession is going to come. They are going to have to step in and cut rates back to zero. And they are going to have to start to monetize debt again in order to keep rates low enough for, for corporations to refinance, for governments to refinance, for um, you know, the, debt, the, the debt to be issued in an environment that doesn't cause financial strains throughout the credit system. So they are going to have to start buying bonds again. So we do not have, and this is why I'm showing you that chart a second ago uh, with the CBO projection. The CBO is talking about this increase in debt, but the Federal Reserve is going to have to monetize up to 30% of that debt just to keep it issuable. Okay, so let me let me re-ask the, the question then, which is um, I, I totally get all that, and we've talked about. It. I mean, that's kind of your main thesis for for the TLT trade, right? right? Is that you know 
the Fed's going to have to step back in to start bringing rates down to help us get out of the recession that we might be in uh, and relieve the debt burden costs uh, on the federal government and just corporations too. Yeah. Um, but my question is, okay, but between now and then, right? So um, we, we've, we, we have a lot of people that, that have been crowding more into bonds than probably they ever had in their lives, right? right. Given until recently how much better bonds were performing or, or looking versus equities. Yeah. Um, and we've talked a lot about the TLT trade and whatnot. And um, I guess the question is, is, does this deficit spending that we've been talking about that's happening, the, the excessive deficit spending that's happening in the here and now, could that, let's say, let's have a year horizon on this. Could, could that actually be making bonds less attractive over the next year or up until the point at which we have the official or the eventual arrival of recession, right? So in other words, if you're, if you're looking to play the, the, the bond trade, does it pay to wait at this point versus building your positions now? I, and so uh, let me just put it this way. I doubled. So in my personal investment account, I doubled my bond position this week. Um, you can't time this and you've got to have an ability to look forward and say, how does the math work on this? Because again, when this occurs, it'll happen very quickly. Yields will drop very rapidly, very fast. You won't have time to go try to evaluate what's going on and make your make your bond buy. You're gonna you're gonna miss the trade. So again, you know, I just I've been buying into every time Treasury rates get to four, four and a quarter percent, I buy more. If we hang around here and and rates happen to go to four and a half for some reason, I'll double my bond position again. And I'll keep doing that because over the next 18 to 36 months, you're going to make a lot of money. It's just a function of, of time until that recessionary scenario sets in and you have the Fed cutting rates back to zero. But again, there's so much money in the system at the moment, it's going to take time for that to play out. And, you know, so if I was a betting man, right, and, and I don't I don't like taking bets because I, I prefer probabilities over possibilities, but there's actually a really good trade setup here to be short triple Qs and long TLT as a hedge. And because, again, valuation stocks are grossly overvalued, bonds are grossly undervalued. So from a fundamental perspective, you can't find a better value setup in, than you can in long dated treasuries right now. Okay, now that, that's a really bold comment right there. Just to be really clear, you can't yeah. find a better setup right now than what you're seeing in long-term treasuries. Yeah. Um, and 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 again, that's just because of of what you see as the near inevitability, right? No guarantees in life, but near yeah. inevitability that that the Fed is going to have to pivot at some point. Right, and yeah, it's just a function of time. And so, yeah, you know, this is this is a high probability trade, sure. Something can change, something can happen. It's always possible, and you always have to factor that in. But you know, this is a high probability trade, but you've got to give it time. You know, it's 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 interesting. You know, every time interest rates tick up a little bit, right? Uh, we have an inflation number that comes out, so inflation number, you know, the interest rates tick up a bit. Knee-jerk reaction to the market, or you know, we have a debt downgrade. So you have this knee-jerk, you know, kind of reaction in the bond market. I get all these emails saying, Well, what does this mean now? You know, do I need to get out of my bond trade? No, you, the, the fundamentals and the math simply tell you where this is going to wind up. But you're, this is something, if you're going to own bonds, you need to own bonds, put your statement in a drawer and don't look at it for 36 months. It's just, you're going to have to wait for that to occur. It's going to take time. It's going to take a long time. Okay. And that's why I'm bringing this up here because we have 
And we've talked about the topic of bonds a lot in the past year plus now. And, you know, we have a lot of people asking these questions. So I want to make sure that they know exactly your current thoughts on this. And, and given your statement there, Lance, about this being one of the best opportunities you see, you think you see right now and that you're taking, you know, steps, material steps in your own personal portfolio. Right. Um, that's a that's a big sort of endorsement of your confidence in this trade. I want to make it really clear, Lance is not offering personal financial advice here. You shouldn't right. just drop and run and buy bonds just because of what he said there. But what I will say is, is if you do not believe that you have as much exposure to bonds as maybe you think you maybe should have, especially given you know what we've been talking about here, highly recommend that you talk with a professional financial advisor who understands them about a strategy for you. And, you know, I'll, I'll make my usual, you know, comments at the end of this video about how if you want to do that with Lance's firm or one of the other firms that Wealthhand endorses, great, you can talk to those guys for free. But if you already have an existing financial advisor, this would definitely be a great topic to raise with yeah. them. The next time you talk yeah. And, and, and yeah, let me just add on to the caveats that you just put out there, because it's absolutely right. This is what I'm doing in my portfolio. So you have to understand is that the way I invest personally, I don't give a rat's ass what the markets does today, tomorrow, this week, last month, this year. I don't care. When I make investments in things, I, I measure my probabilities and possibilities. And I say, I'm going to do this because over the next two years to five years, I'm going to make this much money. This is why I do hard, hard money lending, because I know exactly what I'm going to make when I make hard money loans. And I have high loan to value ratios, et cetera, when I do that. You know, so when I invest, I'm buying stuff that, you know, if it doesn't work this year, I don't care. Right. Yeah, so, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, though. You're talking about Lance, the person. <laughs> not Lance, the person. Not yeah, Lance, I'm the not, portfolio not, manager. But yeah, I, this is what I'm trying to do. I want to be very clear. I'm not doing this for my clients. Right. This is me, the person, me as an individual. I buy stuff with five year horizons and, and three year horizons because I don't care what the market does. All my clients I get emails, well, the market's doing this. Why am I not doing that? Or the market's doing this. I need to do this. And everybody, because of the media, you know, they're focused on what happened from January 1st to today. And that has nothing to do with investing over time frames. But I have to deal with that with my clients. So I can't do what I do personally for my clients because I wouldn't have any clients. <laughs> because they'd be looking at, well, you know, the market did this over the last six months and I didn't do that. But, you know, if you make investments the right way, you're going to make a lot of money over time. And so my bets are three to five years in nature. I can't do that for my clients. My clients have to be more market centric. I have to try to match performance in the markets and those type of things. This year, I'm not doing that because I don't own seven stocks. But, you know, we're, you know, we have to try to, to manage that. So I can't do what I do personally for, for a client. So don't, don't email me up and go, I want to do what you're doing. I can't do it for you. It's just the SEC won't allow me. Um, you won't allow me. Nobody will actually allow me to do that because everybody's so market centric. Okay. Um, totally get your point. And again, you know, that's why I said it's not personal financial advice because yeah, absolutely you, not. You, you have different risk tolerance and, you know, all, it, everything comes down to the unique needs of and wants and desires of the, the person right. you play. Um, that being said, just to do a, a little clarification of what you said, um, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. But you, 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 if somebody does say, "Hey, I want to be a little bit more aggressive in bonds," you're going to let them. You're going to give them caveats and everything like that. So, yeah. you know, you, you, your general point, I think, is, is look, your personal risk tolerance is is higher, but you've got the confidence of your experience. Where for your your general clients, 
you, you have to be more, um, and also because you're highly regulated. I mean, you have to show yeah. that you're not swinging at, at every pitch for a grand slam, that you're you're trying just to get on base more when you can, because that's no. the, the safer and right. Yeah, no, no. I had a client call me yesterday. Um, super great guy. Um, very smart, very adept. And he said, look, he says, I agree with what you're saying. I want half my portfolio in long-dated treasuries. And so we had a conversation about it and I made notes in his file and, and I said, okay, you understand that this is going to change our performance dynamic relative to the market and what's going on if we do this because you're going to have 50% of your portfolio in bonds. Yes, I understand that. And I made those changes for him. So yeah, absolutely. If you say, I want this, we will certainly, we can certainly do that for you. We can give you that kind of bandwidth. And but we're gonna we're gonna notate your file. We're gonna say client requested this, and so you know it's. it's and then as I told my client yesterday, say, you know, you do understand that in a year from now, if you come back and say, well, my portfolio didn't do Y because the market did X, I'm gonna remind you of this conversation. He's like, yeah, I get it, I understand. He says, but I agree with what you're saying about bonds, and I want to play that trade, and so we did it for him. And you know this is the same thing that we do for all of our clients. Yeah, of course we we have our standard models. But if you want to if you want to do something specific in your portfolio, we're happy to do that for you. Absolutely. Okay, great. Just because you made the comment, you said, "Well, I can't do it for my, for my clients." I think technically it is. Hey, if you sit down with a client and they tell you, "I actually want to do something very similar to what you're doing," Lance. Yeah. You will say, "Look, let me tell you all the risks involved in it." But at the end of the day you're your client, it's your money, we'll do it for you as long as it doesn't cross some ethical you know, line, yeah. something we can't do morally. But otherwise, we're going to just note in your, your file here that you're taking a, a more extreme risk than we would have otherwise counseled you, but we're, we're going to let you do it and we're going to do our best to make this work out for you. Sure. Yeah, okay. that's, our, that's well, that's our job, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And if you come to us and say, I want to put all my money in uh, you know, beanie weenies and and pork futures, we're probably going to say you're not a good client for us. You don't need to go find another advisor that does that. Right. Or Dogecoin or whatever. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. If you're going to do something that's going to damage you, you know, we're going to terminate our relationship with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, our job is to help counsel you and and to, to guide you and give you our best experience and advice. And that's what our job is. And we'll certainly help you do what you want to do. Help if you want to be more aggressive, you can be more aggressive. We, you know, I have clients that have 100% equity portfolios and no bonds because they want to be really aggressive. So that's okay. We can we can do all those things for you just as long as you understand, accept, and agree to the risk. Okay, great. All right, I got to move on here because I got okay. a lot of important topics and very little time to to put them in here. So uh, let's kind of consider this to be lightning round. You got it. Um, all right. So first no off, answers. yeah, first off, there's a there's a chart I'm going to show here that the guys at New Harbor put up the other day. Um, and it's a chart of showing that the debt resets or, or not resets, but but the um, the debt refinancings that are huh? going to be coming up over the next couple of years. Um, and I just want to note the first few years. So this year, we're already going to see over um, half a trillion in debt refinancing. Um, next year, that jumps to about 790 billion. Uh, 2025, that jumps even higher to 1.1 trillion. Right. So, you know, the Fed may have well pivoted before then, Lance, but to the extent that rates continue to stay elevated, um, we're going to have that that massive, you know, hit to the economy of the the interest expenses of corporations really dramatically jumping. I mean, these numbers are these are big numbers. We're, we're, we're going to be getting into the point the further we go on quarter after quarter in this 
uh, to really begin to feel that debt drag on economic growth? Yeah, uh, no, the debt refinancing is always an issue. And this is another one of the reasons why, you know, at some point, if there starts to be a failure and in, in, in a rise in bankruptcies, the Fed will start to cut rates and take actions to bail out companies and, uh, you know, help, help absorb refinancing, those type of things. But also remember that the credit markets are also very good at about, about refinancing, coming up with structures in order to get interest rates down so they could come up with some type of you know low interest rates um, you know loan that has a equity kicker on some back end some convertible type structure there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to refinance debt at lower levels if the company needs to and has the ability to do it with you know whatever bank they're working with okay but just to be super clear do you see this as a big factor of the lag effect yeah. that we should expect to see as long as rates stay in the neighborhood that they are right now? Yeah, no, I, it, it's certainly a risk. Um, how big of a risk it is, again, the market knows this already, and this is the important thing, right? The stuff that we're talking about, the market already knows yep. about. This is not new. So the market will price a lot of this in before we get to that point. So this is, and so the, the, the thing that would shock the market is, is that all of a sudden, 500 billion in refinancings all fail. And none of the debt gets refinanced for one reason or the other, right? That would be a shock. The market probably hasn't priced that in. So is it a risk? Absolutely. Is it as big of a risk as a lot of people are making it out to be? Maybe, maybe not. We will know when we get there. We will know when we get there. And I guess one sort of unknown there, I mean, they can they can kind of do the math, but is you just don't know how many of sort of the zombie fleet of companies, yep. these are refinancing is going to start killing, Yep. right? And those are smaller you know, companies. And by the way, those are smaller companies. It's not the Apples, the Microsoft, the Googles of the world. No, it's, it's not the Magnificent Seven for sure, because they got more cash than God. But, but you know. <laughs> you say that, the, the, but we really know how much cash God has. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So that that's just wanted to make sure that that debt risk is still on everybody's radars. Um, all right, inflation. So news this week is we got the latest uh, CPI numbers for uh, July. Um, headline CPI did move back upwards, right? Which is something that we had been preparing folks in this channel for for many months because of just the math of the base effects. We said, get ready for CPI to start creeping back up. Uh, it came in at 3.2% up from 3.0. Expectations were 3.3. So this is kind of being spun as good news, right? Um, uh, core CPI, which the Fed looks at more closely, um, it, it decreased a little bit from June. It went from 4.8% to 4.7%. 4.7% though is still pretty elevated. Um, core services, CPI, uh, and services are a big part of what's been driving inflation still. Uh, that re-accelerated. That's actually back up to 6.1% year after year. Uh, and um, the uh, PPI, the Purchaser's Price Index, that actually rose to 0.8%. It had been descending. This is a tick back up. Point I want to sort of just underscore here is it's showing the stickiness of inflation, right? Um, you know, I, I think the long-term trajectory is still one to take encouragement from, but as I think the big moves have been done, and now the question is, is you know, sort of the 80-20 rule, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of got rid of the easy part of the inflation we could get rid of. How hard is the next remaining 20% going to be to get down to where the Fed needs it to be? TBD but it's looking like it's going to take more effort to get that remaining 20% than the than the, the first 80% was. Which is why the Fed isn't going to come 
Um, you know, they're going to be higher for longer, probably through the rest of this year. Um, it is going to take longer. But again, don't forget the, the biggest chunk of CPI is, is that homeowner's equivalent rent, which runs about a three to six month lag. That is coming down. And we know that that is coming down. Yep. Absolutely. And so there is going to be downward pressure on CPI over the next three to six months as that lag effect of that homeowner's equivalent rent starts to feed in because only because it's such a big component of the CPI calculation. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk more about the housing market. Um, I'm just not going to for time. But um, uh, I do want to note that mortgage rates have now ticked back up to 7.1%, basically. Um, and so we're kind of back into, you know, the the near term record high of where mortgages have been, um, where they go from here, who knows. But right now, um, mortgage applications, which have just completely dried up, are the lowest they've been since 1995. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're almost at a 30-year low now with that. Um, refinancings, obviously, just completely dead in the water. Um, housing market still continues to remain frozen. Um, and, and on that topic, I'll just take your short answer. Maybe we delve into this more next time. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but... Um, there is this standoff, as we've talked about many times, between sellers and buyers. Buyers saying, look, it's the least affordable time ever to buy a house, right? We still have high prices and mortgage rates are crazy high. So I just, I don't want to buy or even I can't buy, right, at these levels. And sellers are saying, hey, everybody, like, let's just wait this out. Nobody sell. They have a disincentive to sell anyways, because they're they're going to basically get worse economics on the next house that they'd have to buy. Um, and so they're just saying, let's just all hold together and then wait until the Fed pivots. And then hopefully everything goes back to normal. And, and we've 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 just waited out this tough time in the markets. And my question is sort of, you know, like the longer this stalemate goes on, where is the power shifting? Is it shifting more towards the sellers or is it shifting more towards the buyers? And I've I've said I think it shifts more towards the buyers. And it's because you have the organic transactions that happen anyways, right? The deaths, the divorces, the forced moves, the loss of job income or whatever. And um, and that sets price discovery, right? Because housing's priced at the margin. Now it's going to set it more slowly than if we had a lot more transactions, but it is still setting it, right? And I was really interested, excited to see that the, there's an economist, um, Vincent Doulard, I think, who was uh, just interviewed on, on uh, he's in the media this week, I think he was interviewed on Real Vision, um, but he basically made the exact same comment. So I was like, yeah, there, that guy thinks he thinks exactly the same way I do. Do you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked about this before is that, you know, I'm in a unique position because I sold my house at the kind of the peak of the market. And, and, you know, so we were just, I'm renting a house now and, you know, we, we wound up buying a house at, at, uh, at a good value in a good neighborhood and it's where we want to be. So we're going through the year long process of doing renos and, and refurb. This house was built in 1965. So needs a lot of work. Um, but for a lot of people, um, you know, they're in the house and they're going, well, if I sell my house, as you said, right, I sell my house today, I've got to go pay 7% for a mortgage. I've got to get a smaller house than I've got today. I'm going to pay more for it. So there's not this big conspiracy of sellers all sitting around, you know, on the phone. These are like, Don't sell. Don't you sell. You, you know, there, there's not that going on. It's just a function that, that doesn't make sense for a lot of boomers to sell their houses and Gen Xers to sell their houses because the economics of where they go to is going to wind up costing them more. So the, the the interesting thing, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but I have this thesis, 
is that when interest rates drop, all of a sudden there's going to be a flood of inventory that comes to the markets because all of a sudden, okay, now I can sell my house, but the price is still up here and I can get a better mortgage to go buy this house over here. And I get kind of the same payment, be where I want to be. So I think there's the potential that we see a big inventory rush to markets, which actually drops prices a lot more than people think. And to your point, I think it becomes an advantage of the buyer. All right. It's interesting. I um, I can see that argument. Um, I'm going to kind of counter it with my argument that the longer that rates stay up this high, if you begin to really doubt the, that prices are going to sustain here, yep. there is a first mover advantage of getting out early, being one of the first to get out early. And I do think that if we reach that stage, you have that sort of waterfall cascade where the early guys start sprinting and then everybody else says, oh my God, I don't want to be the bag holder that rides this thing all the way down. And then everybody floods in trying to sell, right? Yeah. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see if we do but see it's, it. It's kind of, no, it's kind of the same argument that that's kind of the same statement I'm making. Well, but mine's is, not based on more favorable interest rates. <laughs> right. Well, I'm just saying is like, there's going to be a, when, when houses start to sell, you know, as rates come down, you're going to start to see this flood of inventory coming in because- as people start selling, the prices start dropping. Then all of a sudden, these people in the seat of the house going, oh, crap, now I'm losing the equity. I better sell now because it's getting, right? And yep. it becomes a, a function of a panic selling more than anything else. Okay, great. So yeah, we, we, so we're aligned yeah. there. So we'll, we'll, yes. we'll keep tracking this for folks. Um, just noting here that um, I'd love to talk about this more with you, but we'll maybe do it for next week. Um, a, a, a major bank came out and basically said, look, we've run the numbers on the BLS jobs numbers. And these things are really off, right? And I think the latest in in, in this critique, they said that the the jobs numbers, uh, the July jobs numbers, which came in, I can't remember the exact number, but what was it like 180,000 jobs created or whatever? They're like from from the revised numbers of of this bank that was sort of doing an audit, they said, we think maybe it was more like a loss of 30,000 jobs. And of course, we've been seeing positive number released for the past month and then all these revisions to the prior months, right? Um, so we know that something's already up pretty substantially there. But the point is, is I think the mainstream is beginning to catch on to this fact that these BLS numbers are maybe a lot more BS than BLS. Right. And just remember, this is also we're going into an election year. Absolutely. So they're trying to window dress as much as they can. But but my point is, is we're still a year away and people are beginning to call BS on these numbers, right? So it, it may yeah. not hold up um, as, as the smokescreen that they're hoping it will. Um, all right. Again, another big topic that we'll just have to talk about later. But um, the, so the Chinese real estate market is estimated to be the biggest asset in the world. That's why the world was watching very closely last year when Evergrande went into default. Right. And the Chinese government has stepped in to try to really keep that from snowballing or metastasizing into something worse. Um, but now uh, uh, Evergrande was was the biggest or one of the biggest lenders to the, the property market. Now the largest property developer in China, a company called Country Garden, is in danger of defaulting. And they're very system systemically important to the Chinese real estate market. And they have if you were worried about Evergrande, which financed a bunch of projects, uh, Country Garden has four times the active projects in China than Evergrande did. So basically, the collapse uh, or the, the falling into crisis of, of this player could create some really big shockwaves. Too early to tell, but just want to put it on folks' radar that we may have another Chinese real estate 
uh, issue brewing in the works here. Any thoughts on that before I move on? Uh, no, I mean, look, I mean, it's, you know, liquidity from China is is a big thing. And, you know, obviously, there's a lot of function of what the government does to bail out their economy. Um, you know, they force, uh, they force pension funds to buy stocks, they, they do all kinds of things that goes on to kind of, you know, cover up what's actually happening in their economy. And again, you always have to take Chinese numbers with a grain of salt. They report GDP, uh, you know, 15 days after the end of the quarter, then never revise their data. So, you know, it's just, you know, you just have to really understand that, you know, their economic system is very manipulated by the government and you can't really take those numbers at face value. But there is certainly an impact of, you know, potential credit erosion in China that would spread through the rest of the economy should that occur. Yeah. And what, what's, what I think, so totally get your, your points about sort of the opaqueness of Chinese data, right? One of the things that issues like this one with Country Garden that I think give us a little bit more confidence in terms of what's going on is as these players start defaulting on their debts, they tend to default to um, uh, international investors first before they're defaulting to domestic investors. So we actually get a better picture because it's our loans that are getting defaulted on first, right? And I think that's what's happening here right now is that they've they've actually entered default on some dollar-denominated loans to you know international uh, investors, and that's how we're kind of really this is catching our attention right now. So yeah. it's not just a a reporting number that we're we're scratching our heads on. It's hey, the payments actually didn't arrive, right? So it's a little bit more you know we, we have a little bit more confidence here. Um, All right. All right. Um, okay, I had some great sort of, um, you know, more sort of, uh, you know, life insights and and, and tapping Lance's wisdom um, on some larger arcs of of uh, what a next week, what a well lived life is. But we're going to have to move those to next week. Real quick, your trades, then we'll let you go. Apple. That was what we bought Apple this week on the pullback after earnings. And uh, that was it. So, I mean, we've, we've been adding a lot of equity exposure this year during the rally. So we're kind of pausing here, letting this correction play itself out. And then we'll uh, add more exposure when we start to see uh, our next buy signals kick in. All right. Well, you kept it simple on the trades. All right. So just in wrapping up here, folks, um, as we do every week, highly recommend that folks navigate, you know, all that Lance and I have been talking about here with the benefit of a personal financial advisor, a good seasoned professional financial advisor who understands and takes into account all the issues that Lance and I talked about here. And to be quite honest, folks, not that many do, right? So make sure you're working with a good one who does. If you are, and they're creating a personal you know, portfolio plan for you, and then they're executing it for you, keeping you well-informed uh, as they implement it for you, great, you should stick with them. They're, those people are very rare. Um, if you don't have one of those, though, or if you'd like a second, second opinion from one who does, consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. To do that, just go fill out the short form over at Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. They just offer it as a free public service to help as many people as possible position prudently today for what may be coming tomorrow. All right, Lance there. Um, thanks so much for hanging with me this week. Great discussion. Uh, I know you got to go get your wife. Do you have any last word you want to give folks as we wrap things up here? Yeah, I just want to stay married. So I've got to go do my job. All right. Take care, buddy.